1: Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at
0: bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean to learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. And today with me is a special guest, uh, Professor Xavier Loufin, who is a professor of Arabic literature at the Free University of Brussels. He has translated several novels, short stories, poems, and dramas from Arabic into French. And among his recent publications is uh, in English, I've translated the title, the book is in French The Black Poets of Arabia, uh, Poet Noir uh, d'Arabi, an anthology published by Edition de, uh, de l'Université uh, de Brux- Bruxelles in 2021. And today we will be discussing uh, his book, Another Look at Congolese History, Arabic and Swahili Documents in the Belgian Archives between 1880 to 1899, published by Académie Royale des Sciences du Autremer in 2020. And it's part of a series, uh, Sources of African History, which is an international publication project initiated in 1962 under the general auspices of the Union Académique Internationale in Brussels to publish critical editions of sources for the history of sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Welcome, Xavier, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your book.
1: I thank you for the invitation. Thank
0: you. You're welcome. So another look at Congolese history unlocks an an unprecedented journey through the tapestry of Congo's past in Central Africa and the Indian Ocean world. This uh, meticulously compiled collection unveils the trove of Arabic and Swahili archival documents uh, nestled within Belgian archives, presenting uh, an unparalleled lens into a transformative era. Spanning the eve of Belgian colonization, These documents uh, illuminate the diverse cultural landscape, revealing the profound influences of Arab Muslim communities on Congo's uh, societal fabric. From the Arab campaign to the expulsion of Azande sultans, these texts narrate the entwined destinies of communities, their interactions, and the seismic shifts in power dynamics. Uh, Today, we will explore the evolution of Arabic script in East and Central Africa, and its appropriation by local populations and the intricate dance between Arabic and Swahili as potent tools during a tumultuous period of colonization. The book traces these invaluable historical records, uh, colonial acquisition and geographical origins offering a vivid uh, mosaic of voices across vast regions from letters to contracts and acts of submission to manuscripts, notebooks and amulets Each document paints a vivid portrait of historical events, intertwined with linguistic nuances and epistolary formulas. Uh, We will learn more about these complexities of scribes, translators, and the materiality shaping the preservation of these texts, revealing the depth of uh, the cultural interplay between the Congo and the Indian Ocean world. But first, before uh, delving into... uh, the book we would like to learn about its editor, so please, uh, if you can, share a few words about yourself. That is where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in uh, Congolese history and its uh, transregional connections, and if you would like to mention any mentors and book that shaped your career along the way.
1: Okay, so uh, I was born in um, in Brussels, the the capital of Belgium, and, and that's uh, where I grew up. Uh, um i grew up in a, in a place called the Scarbeck, which is quite a kind of a multi let's say multicultural uh area with a lot of people um, with different origins um that's why i that's why i i went to school and um in the late uh, uh uh, 80s of the, of the past century, um, uh, I started uh, my studies uh, at the Free University of Brussels. Uh, that's the university where I teach now. And um, uh, actually, I, I started, um, pr- first I, I studied uh, archaeology at university and uh, while studying archaeology i discovered that there was a department of uh, oriental languages in in the same university and uh, it's strange because i i I started to learn arabic by chance Uh, my 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 main goal was uh, turkish i I was really interested in learning turkish uh, not specifically arabic but uh, in the department of oriental languages at that time and it is still the the, the same today. Actually, uh, Arabic was compulsory. So if you wanted to learn Turkish, you had to learn Arabic as a first language, and then Turkish um, uh, as a minor. And so I said, yes, why, why not? It's it must be interesting too to to learn Arabic. But um, but as as I said, my goal was Turkish. <laughs> and um, at the end of the at the end of the day, I I became specialized in. Um, uh, in arabic language and uh, arabic literature and um whats the link with the uh, with africa in 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 all those studies uh, well um i had some family connections with the with congo because my my, my father was a uh, was a pilot and he used to 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 travel quite often to congo and so congo was a name which was very uh, familiar to me, and actually, it's the same for most Belgians because most of us we 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 had a relative who who had a connection uh, mm-hmm. through one way or another with Congo, and so um, I, I was also very I, I've always been very interested in the in 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 the history of Africa in general and Congo in in particular, and. Um, um i started to after after i finished my uh, my ma in uh, oriental languages uh, i discovered uh, that um uh, in in many travelogs written by uh, belgians or europeans who traveled uh, to congo in the late 19th centuries they were quite often mentioning um Arabic uh, as, um, well, it, it, it was not really clear, but some of them were mentioning um, documents written in Arabic or the fact that there were some um, Muslim traders and things like this. And so I thought, well, uh, uh, maybe that the documents they mentioned in those travels uh, still exist. Maybe I can find some some traces of uh, uh, of those documents and and that's the way i I started to uh, to dig more and more in the history of Congo. Um, so you asked me whether I have mentors. Uh, yes, I well, I, I couldn't I could name so so many people, but I, I will just mention some of them. Um, first for, let's say, during the colonial uh, period, uh, there are two authors. Uh, that I find particularly interesting. The first one is a uh, Trimingham, who wrote a series of books about uh, 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 Islam in Africa and Sufism, Sufism in Africa. And for me, it's an important name because he he gave some some consistency to uh, to the stu- to the studies of Islam uh, in Africa during the colonial period. I mean Islam was not just a name or just a word, but he really, tried to expose, he was not the only one of course, but uh, he really tried to uh, to dig into the um, Islamic culture of Africa uh, in a very interesting way. And the other name is more related to Belgium. He, uh, it is uh, Armand Abel. Actually Armand Abel was um, um, a, friend, a Belgian orientalist and he was uh, teaching Arabic in in my university. So I never met him. I think he died before I i was born, uh, but he he wrote a very interesting book uh, in uh, 1959, which is just one year before the independence of Congo, uh, which is uh, called um, Les, Musulmans Noir, Les Musulmans Noirs du Maniema. So the, the the black Muslims of Maniema in eastern Congo, and it is the first time that somebody who knows very well the arabic culture and the islamic cultures writes about um the islamic culture in congo so for me it was really um, um a pivotal book very 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 important book and then of course i should mention um uh, for for i mean after the independence for for more recent period the, the 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 tremendous work made by uh, john henwick and um uh, rix O'Fahy. uh you know they, they they wrote together this collection of uh, this series of books uh, called um, um, arabic literature in africa uh, with uh, one volume dedicated to uh, one uh, specific uh, geographical area uh, of africa and uh, well for me though this series, this series of books is a, is really a treasure, and it it encouraged me to uh, to see whether something could be done about Congo because, of course, Congo is absent of this uh, of this book. And uh, again, a little bit like Trimingham, um what interested me in in the works of Han and or is the fact that for them Arabic or <coughs> sorry, Islam or or Arabic were not just words, but they really tried to show that there was something to say about uh, Islamic presence and um, uh, Arabic presence in Africa in terms of culture, and not just in terms of uh, politics or or history.
0: Indeed, Uh, thank thank you for sharing uh, that journey that that really connected you profoundly with the Congo uh, through your life. Which is quite to be to be honest, quite unique in many ways because usually um, Africans who are working on on you know this part of Africa usually don't dabble in uh, let's say Middle Eastern languages uh, and assume the lack of literacy and the lack of uh, textual archives uh, in the pre-colonial era uh, for this part of Africa. Uh, so for someone to be interested in this region but also to acquire the needed linguistic skills to you know explore such an archive is quite uh, really uh, infrequent to find um so if you can reflect on that why do you think uh, or or let me rephrase that uh, is it is it is it the problem uh is the way we initiate students and uh, departmental training, and the provided you know resources for that, or is it uh, a much deeper problem with the discipline of African history that assumes you know that pre-colonial African history is by default a void of textual archives and literacy?
1: Yeah, I w- I would uh, definitely uh, take the second option that you mentioned. I'm I'm really I'm really surprised. If- even today, uh, I mean, how people who work in, um, uh, for instance, in Congo, in 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 parts of the country where uh, there are Muslim communities, when when I ask them whether they they have seen documents in Arabic or whether they do know something about. Anything related to to um, uh, to Arabic literacy in Congo, they say, "Oh no, I, I've never seen anything of of, of that kind in the, when I was in Congo." Even sometimes with the uh, people working on um, on uh, working with uh, a Muslim informants in Congo, and the way I explain it, of course there are many reasons, uh, not only one reason, but I think that if I had to to summarize the the main points, I think that. Most of the people who are interested in, in the history and in the cultures of Africa, especially for sub-Saharan uh, Africa, mm-hmm. they consider uh, that uh, uh, Africa means um, orality or oral traditions, you know? And so they focus on this. They they think they, they, they do not expect to find some written documents that would be earlier than... Um, I mean, the colonial prisons, uh, just because they, I mean, they they are not trying to hide it, but they are just not expecting this because in, in their way, in their vision, uh, Africa really means uh, oral tradition, which is not completely um, false, of course, because if you take Congo, of course, the main, uh, the main means of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, uh, historical transmission remains oral tradition, but still, it's not the only one. And and, and this may explain the invisibility of um, uh, literacy, uh, let's say, Arabic and Ajami uh, literacy in Congo. Then there is another explanation, I think. Of course, there are people who are interested in uh, Arabic studies uh, or Islamic studies or both of them. But they consider that country like Congo is uh, peripheral. I mean it 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 stands at the periphery of the Islamic and Arab world in at least two dimensions. First, uh, geographically, it's it's a remote area, far from uh, what they are I mean used to 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 deal with. And then also, um, uh, Islam uh, or Arabic culture, uh, reached the area in 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 a quite uh, late uh, period, which is the the second part of the 19th century. So, uh, to to summarize, I think that people who are interested in uh, in African studies um, are not interested in uh, 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 or are not aware of Arabic literacy, and the people who work on Arabic literacy, they are not interested in. Um, studying countries like uh, like Congo or Burundi or Rwanda or, or other parts of uh, of East Africa because they and so it's it's more lack of knowledge than than kind of um, I mean it's not that people are avoiding to study those areas but they, yeah there is a lack of um, of um, of connections it's like we have two worlds you know people specialized in uh, in uh, Arabic studies. Arabic and Islamic studies, and people who are specialized in uh, African studies, eh, and they don't meet or they don't share the information, uh, which is not the case for uh, West Africa, of course. But uh, for let's say that for Central Africa, it's, uh, it, it strikes me to to, to see this situation. And um, not, not only in Europe, actually, but but even in Africa itself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite right, and which makes scholarship such as yours uh, the more valuable to spread awareness about the existence of these uh, literary traditions in Central Africa. Um, which leads me to ask you about the idea of the book. How did it develop, and what motivated you to trace, collect, edit, translate, and uh, contextualize the the, the documents uh, that you published in this volume?
1: Yeah. So as I said earlier, the first um um a uh, clues that I that I that I met uh was as I said when I was reading those uh, 19th century travelogs. um let, let me take the example of uh, Richard Burton when he explored um uh I mean uh, the hinterland of uh, East Africa he mentions the fact that he leaves uh, Zanzibar with the uh, with letters, and that he brings these letters to um, uh, Arab and Swahili merchants who uh, dwell in the hinterland. And so, uh, because Richard Burton was also interested in Arabic culture, so again we we come back to the same problem. He mentions, um, I mean, the exist the existence of the uh, literacy. In, um, in in the East African hinterland. He's not talking about Congo, more about uh, T- Tanzania and, and countries like this. But still, he mentions this. And that, that was the first thing that made me think, well, if there are some um, Swahili and Arab traders in Congo, uh, they should have the same relationship with literacy. If Burton brings letters to uh, 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 Muslim merchants established in Tanzania, uh, why would the, the same merchants uh, established in Congo be illiterate? It's a nonsense. So I guess that those people too, uh, through one way or another, had connections with the literacy. And so I started to read books written this time uh, by uh, Belgian uh, uh, officers or administrators who worked in uh, Eastern Congo mainly uh, during the late 19th century. And uh, they did exactly what the Richard Burton did. Uh, it means that they mentioned in the in their travel logs or in their official reports the presence of uh, literacy. In, in in of course they were not specifically describing it, but it was a detail in the in the reports. They were mentioning that, for instance, uh, they met a merchant who had uh, a copy of the Quran in, uh, at home, or he, they describe uh, a local chief who has. Um, uh, who uses um, uh, Quranic verses uh, as a talisman, and then some others mention uh, merchants uh, exchanging letters. And so, I, I, when, when I saw this first in the travel logs, I, I, I thought I should check in the archives, and maybe that by chance we could find some. Uh, some documents related to, to, I mean, some letters written by merchants or things like this. And um, so, so I started with this clue found in, in, in those travelogs. And actually, I went first to the, the main um, um, museum related to Africa in Belgium, which is the Tervuren Museum. It is now called the africa Museum, and it is located in Tervuren. Uh, which is a, a small city outside of uh, of brussels uh the, 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 the this museum was built by uh, by king leopold uh mm-hmm. ii and um, uh, in order to emphasize the the colonization the importance of uh, the colonization of uh, of congo at that time and so I, I went into the archives and i checked especially in the the archives related to to officers, Belgian officers, who worked in Eastern Congo. And I was struck to discover, actually, some documents written uh, with the Arabic scripts. And then I started to open uh, other files and new files, and I I discovered that, well, there was a quantity of documents that was uh, uh, sufficient to... Uh, to do something about it. So I, I first published some articles in, in French and then in English uh, about some specific uh, documents related to uh, one Belgian officer or to, to one specific uh, area of Congo. Uh, but then I went to to other museums and other archives like them um, what we call in French les archives africaines, so the African archives, which is the the name of uh, um, all the archives dating back to the to the colonial period, and um, which are now uh, in the um, in the ministry at the Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, and there I discovered some new documents. Then I went to the um, uh, to the the royal palace, and I discovered that even there there were some documents. And so when I saw all those documents, I thought, well, nobody talks about them, so I should try to um um to 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 show them and to to show them to the historians, to the people who are interested in the history of Congo, because. Until now, most, if not all, the books related to the history of um, of Congo are always, uh, they always rely on uh, information written by Europeans. Or they rely on oral tradition, but again, recorded by Belgians. But they never use, I mean, documents like those um, Arabic and Swahili letters and, and and treaties and so on. And so that that, that's, that was really the aim of, of my book. I realized that I had enough of documents. I have found something like a little bit less than 100 uh, documents in Arabic and in Ajami Swahili. And I thought, well, uh, I mean, I would like the historians to use those documents, to know them, um, uh, to see that, um, uh, I will give you an example, there is a famous um, uh, character of the Congolese history. His name is Ngongolutete. He's very famous. Uh, actually, has been um, executed by uh, uh, by the, the Belgian authorities, colonial authorities. But uh, he was an important chief, uh, an African chief who worked first uh, with the Arabs and then with the Belgians. And he is he, still uh, considered as a hero in uh, in Congo. Uh, well, I have found some documents written in Arabic mentioning his name, mentioning a battle um, between ngongolutete and Arabs. And I said, well, there is no information at all regarding this, uh, this specific event uh, in, the, um, in, in the, 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 the books related to the history of Congo. Or, I mean, when you find something about this battle, it is always uh, based on uh, European sources here we have something new, so it's just an example. But many of those documents they can they can shed a, a new light uh, on the history of Congo. I think, and, and so that that's how I decided to to make this book. Uh, so I propose them a transliteration. Um, I mean, I, I, I transliterate them. No, uh, sorry, I, I write down the, um, the original text in Arabic script, and then I propose um, a, a translation in French of uh, every document that I have found in, in the archives. Since then I have uh, discovered, or some colleagues discovered some few new documents, which means that's, that the work is not over, that they are still, I mean, we still have to dig in uh, other kinds of archives and uh, uh, we, uh, for sure we can find some, even some some more documents related to the history of Congo.
0: I was going to ask you about that actually, uh but yeah, it's amazing to find out that there is more to uncover in these different collections. And it's amazing when we start reading these travel logs and then we find, you know, their uh, evidence in, in these documents and collections. So it's, it's a beautiful connection to be made between the archives and uh the travel accounts that we read uh from the 19th century. Um but Before giving more details about these documents, uh, I would like the listeners to have uh, an idea uh, of how did the use of Arabic writing uh, and Swahili Ajami evolve within the local uh, Congolese population? Uh, Were there instances of uh, appropriation or adaptation of the script uh, uh, while being written in the Congo?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, because actually myself, I I was surprised, you know, when you look at the history of uh, West Africa, that's what happened, you know, Muslim merchants arrive in West Africa, they were exchanging their document, some documents, and then the local population step by step uh, started to 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 participate in the production in of such documents because they converted to islam and then they they learn arabic and then they apply uh, arabic script to their own languages you know like uh, hausa fulani and wolof and so on i thought well in in central africa the process was shorter because i mean the 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 muslim communities uh, or the muslim merchants uh, started to uh, visit congo Probably around uh, 1860, uh, not earlier. So I thought maybe it's the, the, this this period is too short to um, to see such um, such a phenomenon that w- that we could compare with uh, what happened in West Africa. But actually, um, it happened. Uh, we have different cases. Uh, the most interesting one. Uh, is located in um, um, the northeastern part of Congo, in an area called the Uele, which is uh, uh, close to um, the Central African Republic and Sudan today. And then there there is a uh, a population uh, called uh, Azande, they they still uh, dwell in the same uh, area today. And those um, those Azande chiefs, they had some quite well organized uh, kingdoms in the in the area, and they were in contact with the uh, Arab traders coming this time uh, not from the Swahili coast but from uh, from the north from Sudan, and it seems that they saw uh, that uh, Arab traders who were visiting uh, uh, the their kingdoms were exchanging letters in Arabic, and 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 it it gave them an a kind of asset you know it was it was something that they that they hadn't because they, they could exchange information written information which means secret information and uh, also they could register things uh, record things and so on and and so uh, what the azande chiefs did is that the um some of them uh, uh learned uh, uh arabic actually it seems that most of the azande chiefs were able to 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 talk uh, in Arabic uh, but then uh coming to literacy first they hired uh some secretaries coming from Chad and Sudan uh areas like Darfur uh th- th- those uh, those were Sudanese who were I mean they, they were like um uh, um they are called fuqaha uh the uh, uh, first they, they they came to um I mean to uh, as teachers uh, of um, of um, in Islamic um, in Muslim uh, schools and everything. But then they they started to write letters for the sultans. So we know that we have Azande sultans who were uh, dictating letters. Uh, so it's interesting because first they were sending those letters to uh, Arab merchants, which is quite normal. But I have found some letters that have been written by a a Zandé chief to another Zandé chief, which means that really they appropriated somehow, I mean, uh, Arabic literacy. Even if they didn't write the letters, I mean, directly, they were hiring secretaries, but that's not important. The important thing is that they were using Arabic literacy as as a means of communication. And then when the Belgian officers came to the region... Uh, they also exchanged letters in Arabic with the with the Belgian officers. So so that that's really a, a, I mean the best case of um, appropriation of, of Arabic writing in the area. But there are some other cases, even if we 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 did we we we, we don't have those documents anymore. They are mentioned again by other sources. Uh, one good example is um, Siri. Uh, so Msiri was. Um, uh, um, a king in uh, what is now Katanga. Uh, he was quite powerful and we have um, um, a European, his name is Arnaud, who stayed for two years uh, in the palace of uh, the king in city, and he describes uh, the king uh, Dictating again a letter to a local, to um, um uh, well, a Swahili or an Arab secretary. It is not clear, but again, it seems that um, the the king was using uh, the presence of uh, uh, Muslim merchants um, and asking them to to write uh, letters to some other people. Um, um, we have a third example. Uh, there is a letter uh, mentioning uh, N'Gongo Lutete, so the, the, the African I was uh, mentioning uh, earlier, and uh, actually it's uh, tipotip himself, so um, the famous uh, merchant who was in uh, Eastern Congo. In one of his letters, he says, uh, the letters is written in Arabic, and is sent uh, to, uh, to the king uh, Leopold, and he says clearly in the letter that's uh, he has sent a letter to Ngongolutete in order to inform him uh, that the Belgians were uh, in need of uh, a manpower in the area. And so he was asking Ngongolutete Lutete to find some workers uh, for the Belgians. But the interesting thing is the sentence in the letter. He says, I have sent a letter to Ngongolutete." Lutete. So again... It doesn't mean that Ngongolutete was able to read Arabic, but maybe that, like the Azande chiefs or, or or like M'siri, maybe that he that he had a, uh, a secretary who was uh, able to 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 read the letter uh, and then to translate it to Ngongolutete and and probably to answer uh, the letter in Arabic. Uh, I say in Arabic. Actually, those documents are sometimes written in Arabic and sometimes in uh, Ajami Swahili. Of course, the, the the European observers, when 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 the letters are missing and that we have just the testimony of the the Europeans, it is never clear whether the letter is written in Arabic or in Ajami Swahili. But still, it's it's the same. I would say the same literacy.
0: Fascinating. Um, so, how would you describe the uh, Arabs or Omani Swahili presence? and its influence uh, on the cultural and social fabric of the Congo on the brink of uh, the Belgian colonization, especially in relation to the use of uh, Arabic writing or Ajami writing.
1: So their influence was um, quite important in many ways. Um, uh, As I said in the beginning, uh, for a long time, literacy seemed to be invisible in the the European testimonies. Uh, However, Uh, The European observers uh, often um, highlight uh, other kinds of influence um, uh, on the local society. For instance, they they quite often mention that uh, new uh, tree species and uh, plant species were introduced in the area, you know, like um, uh, lemon trees and... um, um some specific crops uh, you know were brought from from uh, from the swahili coast or even from oman into east africa then there were other influences like um clothing it seems that many people even um people who did not convert to islam uh, adopted you know like the 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 kanzu and uh, other specific uh, clothes uh, related to um to to Muslim and and Swahili culture. Um, Also the way way some uh, houses were built in some areas, all those things were uh, heavily influenced by the the Omani and Swahili presence in the area. Uh, But the most uh, striking influence is of course the language not mentioning literacy, uh, Swahili very quickly became uh, a lingua uh, lingua franca in the area. And we have depictions of, um, uh, I mean, um, uh, some kings even in some uh, remote areas of Congo were uh, either able to talk uh, in Swahili or they were using uh, Swahili interpreters who were, I mean, translating from their native African language to Swahili and then from Swahili to probably English or French, uh, and that's at the end of the 19th century. So it's a it's it's a multi-layered. Uh, uh, I mean, influence uh, uh, on clothing, on I mean, food, uh, uh, um, uh, buildings, and, and of course language. And and so inside the the, the linguistic area, uh, there is this importance of uh, of literacy. Which uh, uh, and and then of course I didn't mention the the religious factor um, um, quite quickly uh, because we we I mean we are mentioning uh, Muslims coming from uh, Oman and, and East Africa but uh, quite quickly uh, the local population or a part of the local population also converted to Islam because I mean Islam was related to to all those goods that were brought. Uh, uh, in eastern congo and to 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 a certain level of life that attracted the local population if i take again the the example of the Azande sultans if we if we take the descriptions that we find in the um, in the travelogs and the different reports written by europeans in the late 19th century um, most of them adopted the 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 clothing the, of the of the of the Arabs coming from Sudan. As I said, they were able to speak uh, Arabic uh, quite fluently, but also many of them converted to Islam. Especially the chiefs, not, not the whole population, but uh, um, uh, some of the chiefs were were Muslims. Uh, for instance, we have a depiction of uh, Sultan. Uh, Uh, Zemio Zemio, the son of Tikima he's the author of some of the documents written in Arabic and um, so he he kept his um, um, Zande name which is uh, Zemio but uh, uh, according to the depictions made by the Belgian officers who were in in northern Congo at that time uh, he was behaving like a Muslim like uh, he was a yeah, he, he always uh, had a, co- a copy of the Quran in in his hands uh when when he was about to to sign a treaty uh, with the Europeans, uh, he brought the Quran uh, with him uh he also um, had some uh, Quranic amulets um, uh, in his uh, garments and everything so so yeah that's that's the the whole influence of uh, the Omani and Swahili, Uh, and Sudanese um, uh, presence in Congo.
0: And uh, so we, we learned that during the last, let's say, three decades of the 19th century, the uh, the Arab traders coming from Zanzibar and over all the Swahili coast been trading ivory and uh, enslaved humans, uh, among other things, uh, with the Congo. And eventually they... Uh, interact and confront the advance of Europeans, the Belgian in this case, in uh, Central Africa, and the relationship fluctuates between cooperation and open hostility. So can you please introduce the Arab campaign and the subsequent expulsion of Azande Sultans as you've highlighted, and how did these events impact the dynamics and interactions among uh, these documents that were generated as a result of these many conflicts? Yeah
1: again and and that's that, that's very relevant. Uh, all the documents that I have found until now uh, in the archives uh, date back to the to the 80s and the 90s uh, of the 19th century, not later. Uh, and it shows somehow the, the it, it says something about the evolution of the relationship between the the Arab and Swahili traders and and the Europeans. At the beginning, the relations were quite uh, again. If I have to summarize, they they, they were quite uh, positive. Um, it seems that uh, Europeans were. I mean, first of all, they were they were happy to to see people who. Um, how you know, to say? Uh, you know the, the in, in in the racist uh, way of uh, of seeing the African society at at that time, I mean the Arabs because they were Muslims, because they they they, they had literacy, because they were monotheists, were I mean uh, better considered that, that than than the rest of the the African population. So so that's the first thing, and it it's quite obvious. You know, even people when they um some of the observers at that time even when they criticized the 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 the, the, uh, the arab or muslim uh, challengers in the area they somehow respect them because of all those uh, elements and they thought that they well they, we we cannot say that there was a kind of state in 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 a muslim state in, in in eastern congo you know merchants were there just to make trades uh, of course, they, they had some settlements, but they, they, it was not supposed to be—I mean—an official part of, um, of a larger Muslim territory. So first, the Belgians thought that they could integrate, or that they, they could keep those uh, those uh, Arab merchants, and that they could even sometimes rely on them uh, in order to uh, to to establish themselves in the area. And uh, on the other side, it seems that the Arab and, and and Swahili traders saw the Europeans as people passing by. I mean, they were going; they were not going to to, to settle down in the area. Uh, then, in the beginning of the let's say the years uh, 1890s, uh, the Arab and the Swahili's uh, understood that the Belgians were there to that they were intending to stay in the area and that they were really i mean colonizing the area uh, i mean they 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 were they were bringing their flags they were i mean uh, building like um not really cities but you know more and more settlements and on the other side the europeans they also understood that those merchants um who settled down there were going to stay as well and so th- there was a kind of rivalry that was that was actually there from the beginning but in, in in the 90s of the of the 19th century it, it really I mean both sides understood that I mean somebody had to win that they they, they, they would be just one um um one ruler in the area and, and so that's how the war started and it lasted from um uh, 1892 to 1894. In 1894, most of the Muslim uh, settlements were, um, I mean, um, uh, destroyed uh, by the Belgians, uh, and and that's really a, a changing point in the history. You know that that, that that as I said, most of the documents written in Arabic date back to uh, before this period or during this period. Uh, later, we don't have documents anymore because there was there was a kind of, uh, I mean. Um, um uh, the, the belgians uh, decided not to to chase away uh, the muslim communities but they they, they tried to restrain them to keep them at the same size and uh, i mean uh, avoiding i mean uh, I mean, um, forbidding uh, new Muslims uh, coming from, uh, from Tanzania or, or other part of Africa, uh, forbidding the introduction of uh, books or anything that would be written uh, in Arabic. And so th- th- there is this big difference. At the very beginning, I mean, the Belgians were even, I mean, they were receiving letters from their Arab counterparts or Swahili counterparts, and they were also answering to them in Arabic. So the, 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 that, that's quite amazing. During the, the, the 80s and the 90s of the 19th century, the Belgian officers had uh, secretaries coming from the Middle East uh, who were translating the letters uh, uh, written in Arabic to the officers and who were also uh, writing down uh, their answers into Arabic. So it means that at, at an early stage, the belgians were using arabic as a means of communication with the muslim traders but then after the the the, the arab campaign uh, all those things uh, stopped and i mean um uh, muslims were uh, let's say um, subdued and and so um arabic was not seen as a as a means of communication anymore so if people wanted to communicate with the europeans they had to to learn French or to communicate through, uh, uh, through Swahili, um, which which was adopted as a lingua franca as well. And so the, 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 I really see a change in, in, in the use of literacy uh, after that period, but it doesn't mean that literacy disappeared. Actually, it never disappeared. Uh, um, uh, I, I was in Kisangani uh, in September, And I saw that uh, in Kisangani, for instance, uh, some people are still uh, um, reading books in Arabic, uh, using Arabic in their, uh, I mean, mainly in their religious life, Um, but but something changed at, at the end of the 19th century, for sure.
0: Right. Uh, And in addition to the uh, Swahili-Omani, let's say, current coming from the Indian Ocean, from the Nile Valley as well, you have the Ottoman-Egyptian-Sudanese connection uh, advancing towards the south. And we have uh, writings that are in the, let's say, uh, Sudanic or Sudanese uh, traditions. Um, So how would you describe that current coming from uh, the north rather than the east? And mm-hmm. did it ever intersect uh, with the Swahili traditions, or were they always separate?
1: So it's, it's strange because the, the, the both um, ways of penetration into Congo started uh, somehow around the same period, which is uh, uh, 1860. So around 1860 Uh, Swahili and Omanis were uh, reaching uh, eastern Congo and at the same time uh, Sudanese and Egyptians uh, as you said uh, arrived in the the northern part of Congo Uh, and um, it seems that uh, at the very beginning they were not really aware of uh, each other's presence but then around uh, let's say around um, um, maybe uh, 1880 something like this a little bit later they 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 knew of the pre- of, of each other's presence and they started to connect and the belgians uh interfere, of course they were fearing uh that a connection uh, between Muslims coming from the north and from the east, <laughs> would they reinforce uh, the Islamic presence in, in in Congo, and would they weaken uh, uh, the, the European pres- presence? Uh, but um, so it, it's it, it it developed so at the same period, but differently, uh, because as I said, uh, in the eastern part of Congo, literacy was in Arabic and in, in, in uh, Ajami Swahili while in the northern part of uh, Congo, uh, at the beginning, literacy was only in Arabic. And uh, an interesting thing is the linguistic feature of um, of the letters that survived until now, because they are written in a kind of Middle Arabic, which is uh, quite close to the colloquial Sudanese Arabic. So the, the, the letter is not written in, in, in Classical Arabic, but more in a language which is, I mean... Um, somewhere between classical Arabic and, and Sudanese colloquial Arabic, so that's the first uh, a different uh, a first difference between between the two um, the two languages, I would say, out the, the two linguistic situations in in the same country. But then there is something else uh, later in the in the eighteen nineties. Uh, we We have very few surviving books, but we have surviving books uh, in both Eastern and uh, northern Congo. Uh, the books uh, in, that we have found um, coming from Eastern Congo are of course related to the the, the book tradition of the Swahili uh, world. And so the, the, the when, when you look at the titles, uh, it's somehow the titles that you can find at the same period in, in, um, in Tanzania and in, in, uh, in Kenya uh, and so on. While um, um, in the northern part of the country, um, we have found, we have in our archives, for instance, uh, two copies of uh, a book which is called ratib uh, which is a, a collection of prayers uh, written by al-Mahdi. Uh, of course, this book was not circulating in Eastern Congo, but it was specific to Northern Congo. Um, and then, then Mahdi, of course,
0: the, the, sorry, just to note, yeah. Mahdi to the listeners. Yeah,
1: so Mahdi was the Mahdi was the the, the main uh, I mean um, a Sudanese chief who opposed uh, the, 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 the 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 British uh, in Sudan in the late 19th century. Uh, and um so he was um, exhortating uh, people in sudan to i mean to revolt um um against the the the, the british and actually it, it led to an uprising against them and to the the famous battle of uh, omdurman and um and um so he was he was both I, I, we could say he was a political as well as a, as a religious uh, leader um uh, and um, his influence uh, was very strong in Sudan, of course, but even in the northern part of Congo. Because when um, when when the Mahdist troops were defeated, uh, some of the Mahdists uh, um, went uh, to to the south, and and some of them uh, arrived in uh, in northern Congo. And that's how we we have found those books, like um, the copies of the of the Ratib. Uh, then there is a third way, which is uh, not well explored, but which is very interesting. And, and it's, a, it's a contradiction in the colonial history. You know, I said that um, the Belgians were trying to, to break the influence of, uh, of the Muslim communities in, uh, in Eastern Congo and in Northern Congo. But at the same time, <laughs> they were uh, hiring uh, people from West Africa and many of them were muslims uh, and they were hiring them as a manpower you know when they started uh, at, so that's at the beginning of the um, of the 20th century when the belgians uh, 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 wanted to to build a, a, a railway uh, from matadi to uh, what is now kinshasa they needed manpower and local manpower was not enough so they brought people from mali and senegal most of them of course were Muslims. And uh, that led to the building of the first mosque of uh, Kinshasa in, uh, in, I should check, but I think that it was something around uh, 1908 or 1919, which is very early. <laughs> and even before them, uh, you know, during the the, 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 the initial, initial uh, process of colonization of Congo, uh, because Belgium was a very small country, uh, Belgium was hiring uh, uh, soldiers from different parts of the world. Some of them uh, came from Zanzibar, but many of them were Hausa from West Africa, and of course, those uh, Hausa were Muslims as well. And and so it's it's quite funny to see that the colonial power sometimes somehow started to 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 break the influence of Islam in some parts of the country. But then, unconsciously, they also brought a new Muslim um, population in the country because those people still live in Congo now. If you go to Kinshasa, if you go to Kisangani, you will find some um, uh, West African uh, Muslims. Sometimes they have their own mosque, you know, and they are there since the very beginning of colonization. So it's a third way of... um, um, a third way of penetration, which which still has to be explored, you know, because I guess that the uh, to give you an example, um, the Muslims in Eastern Congo are Shafi'i, but the mosque that was built uh, for the um, for the West Africans in Kinshasa uh, was a Maliki mosque, you know. So I guess that if you uh, somebody should make an inquiry about the books that are used among them, the West African Muslims in Congo. It, it, I'm sure it would bring some very interesting uh, information uh, regarding them uh, regarding their own literacy and and their own tradition of, uh, you know we, we I didn't mention uh, I had no time to mention titles of books, but uh, books are circulating in Congo uh, since the late. Uh, books in Arabic are circulating in Congo since the late nineteenth uh, century, and uh, it should be interesting to compare what do uh, West African Muslims read and what do, uh, let's say, Shafi'i Muslims read in Congo. But that's an that's another chapter.
0: <laughs> Indeed, sounds like an amazing project, and. Uh... Hopefully, uh, our mutual friend Vesalur Hassanar, is listening, among others, who would be interested uh, to trace these connections between uh, the Sahel to the Swahili. I guess, uh, and uh, there is so much history to to talk about uh, that these documents uh, uncover, and, but unfortunately, we have a uh, limited amount of time, and and uh, given this hour, we've covered a lot of history that I hope the listeners will uh, find it motivating to go and explore more and uh, read these documents. Uh, And if you know Arabic and Swahili, uh, I'm pretty sure you will be amazed (laughs) by these documents and what they have to tell you. And if you're not, uh, I encourage you to consider it as a source for learning more about the history of Central Africa during this period. Uh, One more aspect that I would like to ask you about, uh, about these documents, uh, about the challenges you encountered while compiling this collection. And uh, if there were uh, aspects you wished to include, but couldn't due to the nature of the project. And I say this because uh, many uh, scholars noted that the Belgian archives in comparison to other European archives on Africa happens to be the least explored and studied. Uh, things are changing now, of course, but uh, if you reflect on that uh, in connection to the challenges you encou- encountered uh, while working on this collection,
1: yeah. To, to, to be honest, um, most if not all uh, the the people working in the different archives uh, that I uh, that I visited were very open. So uh at the contrary sometimes they were even curious you know because they had those documents in arabic but but they didn't know wh- what they were talking about and and so um they were even encouraging me in uh, i mean i had no problem for instance um copying uh, or photocopying or scanning the documents or get access to any kind of uh of documents um, people were really very open, even at the the royal palace. You know, uh, at the beginning, I had some difficulties to 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 see the documents, but it was just because they were, I mean, renewing the library, and I, I had to wait uh, for a while because the documents were 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 were, were displaced. You know, but otherwise, I, I must, I, I honestly, I must say that I I, I really didn't. Encounter any problem in uh, in uh, in um, uh, getting access to the to the documents and copying them and everything? At, at, at the contrary, yeah. Um, uh, but
0: yes, I but, but also in, really... a, in addition to with working with these documents, if you would like to mention any uh, challenges you faced.
1: Well, mm, one of what well, the main challenge I would say is the um, is a linguistic one. Um, as I said, the documents coming from Northern Congo are mainly written in colloquial Sudanese Arabic. Actually, I, I, um, I work on Sudan since a long period, so I don't have any, any difficulty, uh, I mean, reading those documents. But I would say that, uh, the Swahili documents are sometimes quite uneasy to read and, uh, I, I, that's why I, I have um, um, a new uh, PhD student. Uh, he comes from Tanzania. His name is uh, Shaibu Champunga. He started his PhD with me uh, just uh, last month. And he will work on the... Um, I mean, he will take... I mean, all the documents in Swahili that I have translated because there are some lacks. I know that there are some errors in my translation. He will propose a new translation of the documents and also, he will try to identify the, the, the let's say, the dialectal variety of those documents, because I, I have the impression that most of the documents are written in Kiunguja. But I'm, well, he, he, he's a native speaker, so he will be able to, to, to cope in a better manner uh, with those documents. Another challenge still with with the Hajami Swahili is that there is no... Uh, a standard orthography of the of Swahili, which means that uh, sometimes every every scribe uh, every writer has his own way to uh, to uh, to write Swahili with the Arabic scripts and so it it makes it quite uneasy uh, to read. And so some documents are, I mean, really deserve more attention uh, by specialists who will focus on the language and 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 propose um, a better translation that the, that the translations that I made. Um, that, that's the main challenge. Um, I would say that the other challenge that I started to, to tackle uh, in September uh, is to go to Congo and check uh, there uh, whether there are still other documents to, to be discovered. And actually they are. When I was in Kisangani, I stayed just for two weeks in Kisangani and I have found some very interesting documents. Those documents are not very old, but still they are very interesting because there is something very very strange. I mentioned at the very beginning of the interview the name of Armand Abel, who made this fascinating book, who wrote this fascinating book about the black Muslims of Manyema. So the book was published in 1959, and after that, almost... Nothing is said uh, regarding Arabic or Ajami literacy in Congo. <laughs> it doesn't mean that that it stopped. It just means that well, people did. I mean, uh, didn't didn't write about it, or, or I mean, there, there was a kind of an invisibility of the phenomenon, and, and so um, they, they, we have this gap between between and um, uh, 1959. And today, which is more than 70 years, what happened during those 70 years? So I went to Kisangani and I plan to go uh, in a couple of months to, uh, to other places like uh, Kasongo and Yangwe to see whether some documents still exist and to talk about, I mean, local population to see, um, well, to, to, to get more information about the, the, the history of uh, Arabic and Hajjah militancy in the country and um yeah that that's the main challenge what happened after the independence i mean uh, uh you have almost no information with 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 very few exceptions you have one or two ar- very short articles mentioning i mean a prayer book coming from congo and uh, uh but those are short and uh, isolated articles there is no i mean uh, a thorough study of the of the phenomenon and 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 so that's a real problem you know to give you an example i asked people when i was in kisangani do you still uh, write swahili in uh, do you still uh, write uh, ajami swahili and they told me no no my, my grandfathers used to do it but we don't do it anymore and so the the, the question is okay when when did people stop writing ajami swahili and it was quite uneasy to find, you know, um, a, a date. But then by chance, in some, in, in, in a small mosque in Kisangani, in the local archives, I have found a letter written by a local imam in Hajjami Swahili, and the letter was written in 1979. <laughs> but so, so for me, it was amazing. It, 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 that, that was, I mean... Twenty years after the last study made in uh, in Congo, and you you could still find documents written in Aja Swahili, but well, I have found two letters. Could I, shall we find something else later or, or earlier so that we could have a I mean a larger corpus? It's, it's it's the whole point. I mean, what what is the situation in Congo now in terms of literacy? That that's the real yes. challenge.
0: This sounds like another uh, maybe linguistic anthropology project <laughs> that yeah. pick up. Um, so, as the listeners have noted, the book really intersects with the work of historians, linguists, anthropologists, and other scholars uh, who are interested in Central Africa and the Congo. So, the the, the collection in this book uh, promises to provide new narratives. Uh, maybe asking the same old questions by answering them differently in the light of uh, different sources, but also contributing to the study of uh, linguistic history in the region as well, as we've noted. Um, We've taken a lot of your time and uh, I'm really appreciative uh, of sharing this fascinating history. But before letting you uh, go, uh, we would like to learn about uh, your current and future projects. we just a disclaimer we've met recently during a conference that you've organized along with uh jehan safar Mm -hmm. and brussels on slavery and post slavery in the arabian peninsula so if you can share with the listeners some of your uh, activities uh, and projects uh to keep an eye on what's going on
1: yeah so I, I, now I have two main challenges. I mean, I'm now working on a book uh, in English this time. Um, um, the title would be would sound like um, 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 Arabic and uh, Ajami Swahili literacy in Congo: An Invisible Heritage, something like this. And the idea is this time not to translate the documents that I find, but to, to to write the history of literacy in of Arabic and Ajami Swahili literacy in Congo, and to to show the different. You know, I, I mentioned books, I mentioned letters, but there are. I mean, I have dozens of titles. Um, um, I mean, um, of books that circulated in Congo or still circulate in Congo, and every book has uh, its own history. Then we have uh, other kinds of documents, like um, very interesting uh, weapons, you know, like uh, throwing knives coming from northern Congo. And on those uh, throwing knives, you find uh, uh, Arabic or pseudo-Arabic inscriptions. Um, we have, uh, we know that there were some, uh, carved doors, uh, mm-hmm. carved wooden doors with the Arabic inscriptions. in. so I, I will try to, to summarize the, the, the whole thing of what is literacy about in Congo in this book. And my other challenge is to, to wider the network. So as I said, I have now a Tanzanian, uh, a PhD student who started to work with me. I am trying to get another PhD student from Congo this time who will also work on, uh, on those documents. And my project is really, I mean, through new funds to to extend the interest of the scholars uh, regarding uh, um, Arabic and Swahili literacy in Congo uh, from the colonial period until now. And, and I really hope to encourage new and young researchers uh, in working in this field.
0: And hopefully this, this podcast will contribute to raising awareness about the state of the field and your contributions to the study of uh, Congolese history uh, in the wider Indian Ocean world and African history. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights with us today. And uh, thank you for the listeners for tuning in in which uh, we explored Xavier uh, Lufin's uh, book, Another Look at Congolese History arabic and swahili documents in the belgian archives between 1880 to 1899 Uh, this is your host ahmed al-mazmi stay tuned for the next episode of new books in the indian ocean world